0: from Griffith University. These are Remarkable Tales. Growing up in a tiny town in Western Queensland, to becoming the Asia-Pacific Vice President of Communications for global entertainment giant Netflix, Amy Garopinya has never let a challenge get in the way of success. When she first completed her Bachelor of Asian and International Studies at Griffith University, Amy hoped she was destined for a career in the diplomatic service. But little did she know that her path would lead her to managing complex public affairs affairs and communications for some of the world's biggest brands, ranging from global agriculture company Syngenta to Coca-Cola, Google, Uber and now Netflix. And all while contributing her growing global expertise in voluntary roles with a range of humanitarian organisations focused on anti-human trafficking and women's rights. She's continued her studies at Boston College and Harvard Business School and speaks eight languages. Amy spoke to us from her Netflix base and now home in Singapore. Amy, thank you for joining us on Remarkable Tales. It's such a pleasure to be here, Ned. Thanks for having me. I think we have to start at the beginning with you, Amy. How does someone from Mandubra in Western (laughs) Queensland end up in such a high position in, in a global company like Netflix. Can you can you tell us a bit about where this all began?
1: Well, it certainly began with some humble roots. I will confess that I think some of the best careers and the folks that I admire the most across multiple industries have very non-linear paths. And so I think I, I would start by saying... When I think about Netflix, it's really interesting because I grew up in a home that didn't have a television. Uh, you know, my, my family was, was, uh, was particularly conservative about that. And it, you know, when I was a teenager, it was, you know, kind of family time of watching movies together and, and going to the cinema was really quite a treat. It, it was something that we looked at as a, as a very special thing. So I would say to you that from a, a career perspective, a lot of it has been about saying yes when an opportunity came my way, even sometimes when I wasn't quite sure how it was going to turn out. And I think in particular how I've seen that work out and perhaps where I see other people perhaps slightly more conservative in this is also saying yes when you're not quite sure if you know everything about how you're going to be able to deliver on this particular opportunity. You know, And that's been a somewhat consistent theme in my career where – I've been fortunate to have people say, hey, would you consider? And saying, you know, you know what? Yeah, let's let's see what happens with this. And, you know, being transported to places all around the world, you know, to some of the biggest brands in the world. And sometimes, you know, being perhaps the only Australian in the room, often the only woman in the room, but definitely one of the most curious people in the room. And I think, just really having a healthy sense of curiosity, of, of wonder, perhaps, uh, you know, that desire to really get to the why and understand how do we then, you know, move forward from there if we understand, you know, kind of that root cause. And lastly, I would say, you know, I would be remiss not to, but just a lot of hard work leaning into not being nervous about doing the do- the doing. And sometimes that means saying yes to the small things as well as the big sexy ones.
0: Even when you were growing up in Western Queensland, I mean, from, from my reading, you've I think you can speak somewhere between six and eight languages. I've read different <laughs> stories. But uh, where did you get this wonderful, broad perspective of the world and, and your place in it that, that you really needed to be across this and to become... So polylingual. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. I
1: I think part of it is certainly you know my my upbringing with my parents. So my my father is Australian, but his extended family originally comes from Albania. My my mother is is one of seven children. Now I mentioned humble beginnings. You know my my both my parents have have kind of an amazing story to rediscovering education and love for learning that really was you know instilled with me. Languages for me, to be honest, uh, really started as a labour of love. And and I would say that, you know, whether it was from, you know, very, very early stages being in, in schools in primary school and, you know, being taught to count in Bahasa as well as in English, um, you know, or signing up for demonstration schools that were doing really quite immersive and interesting things with languages that kind of Get your brain working in a slightly different way because you're engaging uh, in the content, I think, in a more kind of dive in and make it make it work for you. I think languages for me has also, to be honest, when I started learning different languages, I really thought it was going to be about me as the communicator. I'm going to be able to say what I want to say and people will understand me. And the more I've been exposed to to different parts of the world and to different communities around the world, the more I've realised that it's actually much more about me being able to understand what other people have to say. And I find that very often if I'm in a, in a part of the world where I do speak the language, when people realise that very often and you know kind of they really grab onto it and say I've been waiting to tell someone this or I've really wanted somebody to be able to understand this and they'll they'll launch into something that's this amazing insight about a country or a culture or a particular you know kind of social trend that's taking place that I know is such a privilege to understand because I you know without that language you know the barrier to perhaps breaking through and connecting with people is is, is a real thing so I you know they for me, it's just been kind of a, an ongoing labour of love. It is eight languages if we don't include English, and I've been told <laughs> as an Australian that maybe I'm not allowed to claim that language. <laughs> but you know, and they're not they're not all perfectly fluent now. And I think you know, languages is just one of those things. It's a muscle that you have to use, and if you don't use and flex it frequently, then you often you know, can forget it. But I've been very fortunate with with the. Uh, Work opportunities that I'm often working across countries and therefore get to use multiple languages at any given time uh, in my in my day job. So um, no complaints about that.
0: And I think this perspective is, is so intriguing, Amy, because we're in an age now, and of course, your background at Google, you know this perfectly well, yeah. where we can pretty much translate everything instantly. What is the value yeah. really in having a humanities education such as this is where you started at Griffith with your languages? Is yeah. there a continuing value in being able to speak other languages, as you were saying?
1: Oh, my goodness, yes.
0: And and I have to say
1: this, you know, I, I actually had this conversation after I graduated from my undergraduate degree, you know, when I was kind of like, okay, what, what direction do I want to take my career and, and what opportunities are there out there for me? You know, someone who I admired, he was a very senior executive in a US multinational working in Asia overseas at the time, said to me, Amy, if, if you'd graduated with an engineering degree, then you'd be an engineer. I'd know what to do with you. But, you know, coming from a humanities background, you know, so I, I have a double major in Asian political science and Asian languages. And he said, you know, it means that you're always going to be in some ways what a company would refer to as an opportunistic hire. And what he meant by that was, Someone has to create an opportunity. Has to see how you would slot into something that perhaps doesn't exist yet, or might be a newly defined uh, opportunity for impact in terms of a role or scope. And to be honest, I really, I really clung to that. I thought that was such a great invitation to actually engage with different companies, particularly because when I started working <clears throat> twenty plus years ago, <laughs> um, you know, that conversation was a lot of the jobs that exist today hadn't been defined yet. And I think what's really exciting about where the future of work is going is that more and more as you come with different perspectives and different expertise, even if it is coming from you know, humanities um, backgrounds, even humanitarian backgrounds as well. I have a lot of friends in the nonprofit sector who are moving into uh, big companies and bringing that really, really needed perspective with more empathy as an example. You know, Companies are much more open now because they're realising that the traditional job descriptions that we had, we actually need We need people who can bend and flex. You know, we need people who can wear multiple hats or who can take the hat off and throw it out the window if it's in service of a specific objective within the company. And that, for me, means I think we could be bold in thinking about I might not be the engineer in the room and yet I have a perspective that I'm here to be able to contribute constructively to the conversation and I I always think that even when I'm in, you know, I've had the opportunity to move across a few different industries where I definitely did not enter that space as a subject matter expert but I know that my perspective can bring value and I want to be humble about that but intentional about it too.
0: And I think that that's encouraging too for people particularly at the moment obviously in this very challenging COVID times but for people to realise that there are opportunistic jobs available even even now they're not all advertised and that's perhaps where that humanities and a broader education can be really handy if you see that as a tool and as a, a selling point.
1: Yeah, and I would say, I mean, one of the things that I've seen a lot of people be doing specifically because of COVID is leaning into networking in a much more intentional way. And some of that obviously is happening remotely. It's happening, you know, only through the virtual world and obviously through our digital connections. But I would say to you that nothing substitutes for relationships, even in this era where we are all somewhat more disconnected than we've ever been before. And if you're thinking about this in the context of your future career or your, your career path, I mean, one of the great pieces of advice I was given is, you always want to be thinking about who are the people that you admire the most that you love to aspire to work with or work for – And when you start looking for those people on places like LinkedIn, for example, you know, build relationships that aren't necessarily about a need that you have right now because what you don't realise is what a small world that we live and we work in and the fact that so many of these innocuous little clicks that we're making that connect us and, you know, that build a community around us actually have the ability to also introduce us to opportunities that we didn't know were available. And I will also say to you, in that spirit of kind of opportunistic hiring, so many of the best roles that I've been offered were not advertised um, so many of the opportunities that I've actually extended to other people as I've had the privilege of being a leader and a people manager and an organization builder, then also not advertised. I mean, I've even gone so far when I found really interesting profiles of people to say, hey, would you be willing to write the job description with me? Because I want to make sure that this plays to your strengths and that we're not limiting our opportunity to be creative and strategic in how we approach what you could bring to the organization. And I think that that really is a sign I'm seeing much more of in my peers, you know, in my company as well as outside of it, that this is what uh, you know the future of careers looks like that. It's it's co-created as opposed to you know cookie cutter.
0: And speaking of COVID, I think we've we've got to mention, of course, Amy. You started this great new role at Netflix pretty much right at the beginning of that. How has that gone for you? It's been an incredible year for for everyone. A bit of a bugger of a year, I think many would say. How have you been able to roll with that? Has it been beneficial for Netflix? Challenging. What, what have you found?
1: Yeah. So I will definitely say, I mean, I I don't think that we can gloss over the fact that COVID is having, you know, an incredibly difficult impact, you know, whether it's just human life, which I think we should never, you know, take for granted. There's a huge amount of of tragedy and loss. I think on the economic front, it's an incredibly tough situation. And the fact that we have governments having to make decisions that, you know, that are sometimes, you know, health and or economy as, you know, the fact that these can't be either and or uh, is a really, really difficult situation to be in. For Netflix, you know, I think we, we've had a, a number of different earnings calls over this year, and we've talked about how, from a business perspective, the performance has been. We've obviously well positioned um, when people are looking for joy uh, in difficult, you know, difficulty, or sometimes looking for escapism in whatever form that, that that takes them. I think we've been there in a way that, to be honest, it's been very humbling to be part of, you know, because it, it very much, you know, this this passion that we have for storytelling has really I think taken on a new meaning for a lot of people when we're in the absence of the kind of conversations that create that connection that we would have in normal life. On a personal front in terms of just you know onboarding to an organisation I've had a a double whammy in that it's all been virtual but it's also all been remote so this year while you know COVID is obviously the, the, the bad note of the year in terms of where we started my year actually started on a high note because I became a parent. So I, I gave birth oh, to my first child congratulations. in January. Um, thank you very much. Um, and, uh, you know, so I actually have had the experience of now being in a remote location where I was intending to take maternity leave. And because of COVID and borders closing, not being able to actually get out of that location and get back to working in an environment where other colleagues are actually based. Mm. So I will say, you know, I, I lean very much into the technology in that regard to stay connected one thing that i think is a testament to netflix and to its culture has very much been these one to one conversations these video chats or these group calls have actually allowed for a degree of intimacy i wasn't expecting you know people are willing to be vulnerable and i think to be honest one thing i hope doesn't doesn't go away post covid now when you ask people how are you i think they're really actually answering that question um you know they're, they're willing to actually talk about where they're at at that particular moment in time and not just kind
0: of yes yes let's move on to talk about the work because they're um, in their lounge room i suppose and they they feel a yeah, bit exposed yeah. as well
1: <laughs> they're in their lounge rooms they're in their bedrooms you know i mean i uh, I give an example, I was I was on a call this morning with uh, our co-CEO and, you know, my, my eight-month-old baby boy needed to make an appearance because, you know, it was time for him to have his breakfast, you yeah, know. So, um, you know, it was all very PG and appropriate. But, you know, suddenly we actually have to just make room for things that are life and are natural and that wouldn't normally be happening under the, you know, kind of watchful eye of all of the, the, the videos, um, you know, that we're participating in. But having said that, you know, I... I feel very fortunate to have been able to make this type of move, despite the fact that we're, you know, kind of in this global pandemic. You know, I think that Netflix has got some very big plans for Asia that I'm incredibly excited to be part of. And just more broadly, you know, one of the things that we have a number, obviously, of of different goals, but in particular for me, when I think about just what I've had the privilege of being exposed to across the region, this idea about more people deserve to see their lives and their cultures reflected on screen. is just so incredibly motivating, you know. And I really want to look at how do we find those untold stories and we shine a light on them.
0: And I think I can see that in your social media feeds, Amy, with uh, your Twitter and your Instagram. I really wanted to ask you about that, and, and certainly a very strong feminist bent, if I'm correct in, in describing it that way. You seem—is that really a big motivation for your work? That that inclusiveness?
1: Absolutely. I I will say, you know, I mentioned earlier about often being the only woman in the room. And certainly I will say I've seen this evolve a lot um, over my career in different companies and different industries. Netflix is very intentional when it comes to inclusion. And I think when we talk about both diversity and inclusion, it's something that I think doesn't happen by default. It has to happen by design. So, you know, I, I will say when I was growing up professionally, I didn't have a lot of female role models. You know, I I will dare to say that, you know, when I was in my 20s and my early 30s, the idea of having children, you know, at that time based on what I was observing seemed like it was the end of one's career and one's ability to progress in an organisation. You know, the fact that, just as an example, you know, I could be extended a a contract offer when I was nine months pregnant to start a job on maternity leave is something I never imagined would be possible. And it just, you know, for me is this reminder that We have to be willing to talk about these things because I think if we don't, then we have this wonderful generation of women who are coming after us who potentially are not seeing this as the opportunity that it could be. And so, you know, I'm loving motherhood. I love being an executive. Um, You know, I love love the the mix of those two things. And obviously, everyone finds their own rhythm and their own way of doing these things. And what's right for you is what's right full stop. You know, I, I don't have judgment on that. But I do want to make sure that we have more of these honest conversations, because I think that it gives women and particularly earlier career professionals, whether you're male or female, the ability to make choices that I think they might assume they don't have the agency to make. Really simple example to give you. I talk to people a lot, and this might seem, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but just to share it with you. You know, so much of my early career, people always talked about work-life balance And I always felt like, you know, that concept, you know, in your mind you have the idea of the scales and you need to get them perfectly aligned. And that once you reach that, you know, kind of uh, apex of the mountain and you hold your breath because, you know, you you need to keep them in that kind of perfect line. And the reality is our lives aren't like that. On any given day, you know, you're tipping the scales one way or the other and you're making conscious choices about what you're going to potentially compromise on or or sacrifice. And so I actually reject the idea of there being work-life balance. I think it's about boundaries. And I think one of the things that's a really important lesson that I've learned, sometimes, you know, harder lessons than I'd like to have learned, I think that setting a boundary is an act of self-love, but enforcing the boundary is an act of self-respect. And it's a really hard thing when you're an an earlier career stage professional, when you're younger in your career, to actually feel like you have the ability to say no to things and that you can actually draw lines, but especially during COVID, because so many people are under so much pressure that we don't see outside of, you know, this little box in, in the video screen We actually have to be much more intentional to make sure that we set those boundaries and that we respect them. We demonstrate to people that they matter to us. So I would say, you know, I absolutely think it's fine to call me a feminist. But I would say beyond that, I just want to be somebody that's advocating for people to be able to bring their best selves into whatever environment that they're coming into.
0: How has the feeling been in Singapore where you're based? I wonder how how different it is to Australia being experiencing all of this.
1: I think one of the biggest differences I would say is that in certain parts of Asia I think that COVID was, you know, for lack of a better word, COVID was a thing before it became, you know, on people's radars in other parts of the world. You know, I know come December and January, this is something that was being actively discussed. People were starting to put in certain measures, start to take certain precautions and governments were moving quickly in ways that I think it took, you know, kind of February, March, before a lot of other parts of the world, including say Australia and New Zealand started to take more proactive measures. I think in some cases that served different countries very well. I do think the Singaporean government has, a, you know, a wonderful reputation for efficiency and for efficiency effectiveness. They've obviously seen certain spikes within the country that they've, they've worked very hard to get under control very quickly. And I think, you know, for, for lack of a, of a better description, you know, as much as we are now wearing masks, we're doing multiple temperature checks a day, we're observing social distancing, things are as close to business as usual as they could be. I mean, people are still very much uh, having the conversations they need to have to get the work done. Families are navigating what this means and, and how that impacts, you know, schooling just like they are in other countries we have the benefit of the perpetual summer that is this part of the world so at least we're not dealing with some of the environmental challenges that I think other parts of the world are really struggling with.
0: What about the limitations on freedom and particularly international travel and Australia closing its borders has a big impact for you too I imagine but also I think from from Netflix I just wonder how that impacts on production and how you've had to roll with those punches how can you tell us how that has been?
1: I think the most honest answer is to be very thoughtful about it and also to be to be taking it one step at a time so The truth is that we have production taking place in any given part of the world on any any day, even to this day, with COVID going on. Depending on whether countries have got their community transmissions and and kind of infection rates to a very low point, and the industry as a a total ecosystem feels confident, some productions have moved much faster than others. There are other countries where we've seen, for example, a second or a third wave, and productions have been paused. There's a lot of appetite to kind of get back to some version of normal when it comes to the creation. Creative process and people wanting to obviously see whether it's a film or it's a series or it's a documentary back in front or behind the camera. Um, And I would say to you, you know, from a freedom perspective, our our goal here is to obviously be as supportive as we can to the creative community and also to follow the health recommendations. And so in some cases, that means that there are closed sets. It means that we're obviously using where we need to, uh, you know, PPE, we're doing testing for groups, we're potentially keeping people in small hubs or or bubbles in terms of the the actors that, the, and actresses that are involved in different productions. So I would say, you know, that there's still quite a lot of activity going on despite these things. It's not obviously the same standard, um, you know, and or the same level in every country. But I certainly, I miss a world where we can get on a plane and we can pop over and see each other, both on a personal note. Obviously, I, I, I would love my parents, who are now first-time grandparents, to have that interaction mm-hmm. with my son. Um, but also I would say that, it's also just the the difference in being able to sit down and connect with people face to face and in person that while technology does a fantastic job of, of bridging the gap i think there are just some things that are better and are richer when we're when we're sitting down and we're connecting directly
0: it sounds very fitting with what i've read of your career to this point amy and a lot of of, of the people that speak on your LinkedIn and who who are quoted in articles about you talk about how you respond in a crisis that it might be this incredible crisis that you can't see out of but that's when Amy seems to shine is that what you've been able to do do you think with with COVID which is certainly something I don't think anybody saw coming in my line of
1: work a crisis actually just presents you with an opportunity in different packaging and you know I, I don't say that lightly because I think you do have to be very careful when it comes to things that are around health and safety certainly when it comes to the physical health and the physical production uh, of the work that we are doing. Having said that, you know, I also think that the world is one where we can pivot quickly when we choose to. You know, so I think, you know, whether it's dealing with an issue or something that escalates into a crisis, you know, my perspective about these things is is to be very intentional about them, to try as best you can to be informed and to make decisions based on the best information available to you. I do think, you know, particularly when it comes to working in organisations that are much flatter organisations like, say, a Netflix you need to make sure that you're open to learning from anybody at any level of the organization because you can often gain insight or or potentially gain perspective about something that you might not have thought about just by being available and accessible to people and so on. I try very hard to be to be both of those things but I think you, you in some ways you're only as good as your last crisis and so you know you, you obviously have to constantly be evolving and I think that's something that we're all striving to do, particularly given we're in this very unprecedented time and there isn't really a playbook to follow. We, we we have to figure these things out as we go and we have to constantly be learning and adjusting.
0: So you mentioned it briefly before as well, your humanitarian work that I found very interesting, Amy, that... Despite yeah. this incredibly busy career, I'm not sure how but you have <laughs> you've managed to and not just work with one but with with many humanitarian groups. Why why do you make time for that? What are the benefits of that?
1: Joy is <laughs> the shortest answer. <laughs>
0: You know, uh, some of it started,
1: I would say, earlier in my career. So I, I've been involved, particularly in, in anti-human trafficking and women and children at risk type of activities. I would say probably for you know twelve, going on maybe fifteen years now in the region in particular. A lot of it actually stemmed from the fact that I wanted to, I wanted to find a source of joy and a source of meaning outside of my work, um, outside of the core that was my nine to not five, but you know, well and beyond. And I think that doing something that felt like it wasn't about me, it was about a greater good. Um, and it was particularly about serving a community that might've been under-resourced or under-appreciated. It kept me humble. Uh, it kept me honest about priorities. And I think it's also, you know, from a language perspective, it's, it's stretched me in, in good and uncomfortable ways. And just from an impact perspective, it's made me think about things differently when I weigh up, you know, how I'm, I'm using my time, you know? And so I, I look at that really as a privilege, to be honest, uh, and, Yes, there are never enough hours in the day and that, that doubly, you know, is true now as a parent as well as an executive. But I think that having a social conscience is so important to being a whole being in whatever community that, that, uh, that you choose to uh, associate yourself with. So this work for me has been important in just making sure that I have perspective and making sure that I'm very grounded to the fact that there are lives and there are realities that are very different from mine that are equally important and, and deserve space.
0: Yeah. So, Would you encourage other students going on that career path now to perhaps look at that as their passion as well? You often hear people saying to, to pursue your passion and maybe is, is that also a reason for doing this humanitarian work?
1: It's definitely a passion for me, for sure. I think the advice about pursuing your passion is is a very good, you know, place to start. I, I think that pursuing your passion without leaning into the hard work, though, is something that I would I would just caution people. You can love something, but if you're not willing to do the hard yards, I think you you won't necessarily see the returns from that space. And so I think if someone, for example, decides that what they want to do is is to work in a field like, for example, you know, a non profit community do it, but do it with with everything you got, you know, lean into it. And particularly when you're, you're earlier in your career, I mean, this is the time to take risks and try stuff experiment and find not only what you love but what you don't love because if you can find the things you don't want to do it makes it so much easier for you to to really think about how you want to plan those next few steps and to lean into the relationships that might get you there
0: and continued study seems to have been a very important theme with your work as well and that's dovetailed in with the the, the progression of of the different jobs you've taken on particularly at Definitely.
1: Harvard, I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I, I've been very fortunate in the companies that I've worked for to have executive education programs and, and kind of postgraduate certification programs made available to me. And, I, you know, I recognise... So I, I will share with this group, you know, from Griffith, I, I was a scholarship baby. You know, I, I have the Australian government and the Australian taxpayers to thank for a lot of my initial inroads in education, both in Australia and overseas, and, you know, I look at that as, as, as such a tremendous jumping off point. So I think if you're curious about going deeper, the, the short answer I would give you is dive in. You know, I think there's perspective to be gained from working between uh, different levels of degrees or different kind of education opportunities. I think it, it just gives you real world experience, which I think you shouldn't be underplayed. But having said that, I think if this is part of pursuing your passion, if it's part of getting deeper into a space that you want to establish yourself as a subject matter expert, why not?
0: Very good uh, advice for me just on that little deviation there, Amy, because I'm p- contemplating <laughs> doing my PhD. So you've inspired me. Thank you. I'm going to have to replay that bit. Oh, early, I think later on. Uh, so do you think you would have realised, looking back now uh, at your Griffith days, where you've ended up? Uh, how, how do these careers progress? How intentional is it? Or is it about being open to opportunities, as you have said?
1: So I, I definitely think if you'd spoken to me 20 years ago, I, I would not have assumed I would be sitting in the position that I'm in today. I don't know in my wildest dreams, I would have assumed that I'd worked for the companies that i worked for. And, you know, just to give you this as an idea, we started talking about language and the role that that's played in my life and my career, just as an example. You know, at my high school and graduation process then, My assumption was that I was going to study Japanese as a single language formally, uh, that I wanted to go and work for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I wanted to be, you know, at one point, perhaps an ambassador, um, you know, very much saw myself moving into diplomatic service and then. Life happened and opportunities came my way and Japanese continues to be a language I have a deep love and respect for, but it didn't define my career the way that I thought it was going to. To give you this as a very interesting kind of curveball example, I received a phone call out of the blue one day from a recruiter saying, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile and it says you speak Thai and that's very interesting to us. And I thought to myself, well, that's a very interesting starting point because most people ask me about my fluency in Mandarin or in Japanese. And so I was it just piqued my interest to understand what are you looking for in Thai and, and is that going to give me an opportunity to work in a market that I deeply love and have, have personal roots in. And that ended up being my opportunity to move into Google. And I would never have anticipated that that was what they were looking for that was the tipping point for me. So I think not necessarily being closed and also You know, when we're young, we assume we know everything. (laughs) You know, we've got it all planned out and and we know exactly how this thing is going to to turn. And yet I think being open to the idea that actually there could be a curveball, but it's exactly where you need to go. You know, those detours on the road can often get you to where you're meant to be. I think that that's, it's learned and lived experience for me. But I think sometimes we worry a little bit too much about it has to be a certain way. It has to happen within a certain time frame. So I think give yourself a break. Try the thing and see how it works. And if it doesn't, remember that it's not the end of the world. I, I just want to reference, you talked about a PhD. I mean, my, both of my parents in their 50s made very, very big decisions about you know, their careers and changing industries and pursuing postgraduate work work that I never assumed either of them would do. And I would say they stand to me as as wonderful role models of, you know, you never stop learning, you never stop pursuing things. And if you stay curious, who knows where that next turn is going to take you? And they're both in spaces that they deeply love and they are having meaningful impact. And it's so inspiring to me to see that because it's a reminder that while I think about my impact now, who knows what that will be in the future.
0: So, Amy, just to to wrap up, and thank you so much for joining us on Remarkable Tales today. It's been wonderful to get your insights on on your wonderful career. Is there still a little bit of the the country Mandabra girl in you, even in that incredibly dense, sophisticated metropolis of Singapore? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
1: Always. Yeah. You can take you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. You know, I, I have a deep love for being outdoors. I'm often, I find myself in concrete jungles and I really crave being surrounded by green and the peace that comes with that. A deep love of animals uh, and deep respect for them and, and the role that they play. You know, I, I grew up in a farming community and, you know, looking at that and looking at where I am today, I know, you know, that there's just such a big leap from that. But I think not taking anything for granted and, as I said, doing the hard work, it really does take you a very long way from where you start.
0: Thank you so much for joining us in Remarkable Tales, Amy.
1: My pleasure, Nance, and all the best to all of the Griffith alumni.
0: That was Griffith University graduate Amy Garopanya speaking to me on Zoom from Singapore for this episode of Remarkable Tales. Remarkable Tales is a podcast production of Griffith University. It's produced by Nance Haxton. That's it for this episode of Remarkable Tales. I'm Nance Haxton. See you next time.